Welcome to Blanking and Covers, the show where we cover the covers. I'm Danny Getz, and with me, as always, is John Trainer. What's up, John? Hi, Dan. So, so how are you feeling about this one? Intimidated, super intimidated. <laughs> that I, you know, this that's the first time where I I really felt out of my depth with a subject, and and thankfully we have the. The, the best expert I know on most music things, but especially Velvet Underground, Shava Golko. My Aunt Shava, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Dan. Hi, John. Hi. Welcome. I'm, I'm so excited to have you. We, we, uh, we, we look for people on this show who are fanatical about music. And I, I honestly, I don't think I know somebody who is more fitting of that description than you are. Well, thank you. Yes, I've, it, it has been my life's devotion. And I have, um, I have stacks, stacks of CDs and nothing else to show for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's not entirely true. You have, you have tons of set lists and uh, your concert anniversaries. Uh, this is true. No, I, actually, I, I do... I do have lots and lots of wonderful memories and stories of music and uh, Lou Reed and Velvet Underground loom pretty large there, although I never did get to see them perform live. Oh, that was going to be my next question. No. Have, have you seen like any of their, their individual time or? Well, I, 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 I got to see Lou several times. I uh, saw John Cale a couple of times and I did see Lou and John together performing uh, songs for Drella, the, the album they created uh, in tribute to Andy Warhol. And I saw Mo Tucker play a few times as well. So, um, Oh, cool. Oh, and I saw Nico. She was the, she's the see, drummer, right? Yes. Mo was the drummer. I, okay. did, I did see Nico uh, long, long ago. Well, it would have to have been, she's been gone a long time. So, so yeah, yeah it's I, been a, it's been a long time. Yeah. Uh, of the original members, the only person I never saw perform live was Sterling Morrison. Oh wow, I mean, that that's still pretty impressive, and like that's really impressive. The 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 fun because my my base knowledge of them is like, you know, I I like songs. That, that was kind of how I was coming at it. Like I've never heard a song I didn't like, but I never really jumped all the way in. And then yeah. I watched the uh, Apple TV documentary, which. If you're a fan of music documentaries, that's one of the best ones I've ever seen. Oh wow! Yeah, it is well done. It, I mean, it it benefits the the documentary that Velvet Underground was such an art band because there's so many cool archival pieces of footage that they're able to just throw in there and kind of pad the sensibility of the documentary. But they also don't really ride the same waves of a normal music documentary of like this is how they started and this is where they fell apart and then this was their comeback isn't that cool it's like it it kind of just glosses over the bad parts and like just kind of talks about them like yeah this is necessary to create art but it focuses more on their artistic endeavors and kind of how they became the people who made this type of art. And it's a really, really cool approach to a, a music documentary. Did they have like a, did they have an up and down? Didn't they just like, didn't they peter? I thought they like petered out, right? Well, they, 
it's a weird thing. I mean, I guess I mean Shava can probably speak to it more than I can. It's my my knowledge only comes from the documentary, but it was just they they slowly lost members. Like the 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 Nico thing kind of happened and didn't, and then John Cale was kicked out of the band. And then Lou Reed left the band, and then I don't know why there was still a band after that, but there was still a band after that for a little bit. Uh, yeah, he uh, yeah after he left. There, there wasn't much, much point. And then at one point, the, the band that was left was called, they were, was called the Velveteens because they weren't really the Velvet Underground anymore. Um, but in the early 90s, they did have a reunion and they did a, a tour in Europe um, and where they, were, they planned to tour here. And by the time they, uh, they got through the European dates, they uh, had split up again and didn't want to have anything to do with each other. So, <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> so it, it didn't. It didn't last. It was. I, I have a friend who went who went to those shows, saw a lot of those shows, and said they were amazing. But you also had the sense that this is not going to last. This is sort of a precious thing that's going to be fleeting, and it was. Do you think that's kind of what was appealing about them in the first place? Well, no, I, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, they they weren't designed to be a disposable product. They weren't like the Sex Pistols, you yeah. know. They were designed to be. They were designed to be art and a concept. Uh, but they were also a true band. They had a gifted songwriter. They had great musicians. They knew. They knew where when they should work with Warhol and when they'd reach the point where they didn't need to work with him anymore and they really could be on their own. Um, but on the other hand, they never found their place. They should have, but they never did. And it's hard to stay together and keep at it when you're just not getting anywhere. But that was the thing I found most interesting with the documentary was the, the Warhol aspect of it, because they're so closely tied to him that my perception was that like, so goes Velvet Underground, or so goes Warhol, so goes Velvet Underground. But I didn't realize how much that Warhol had nothing to do with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, by the time he found them, uh, Lou and Jean had already been working as uh, in-house songwriters at Pickwick Records. Uh, they were already doing different things. Uh, he just sort of helped them. He helped them move to the next step, and he was the one that brought in Nico. Yeah, that's what I thought. I thought that he was the one who kind of pushed Nico on them, right? He did. Didn't that make Lou bad? Uh, he wasn't crazy about it. Um, and <laughs> and and he he and there was friction between Nico and Lou. Um, they were. I mean, they were two prickly personalities. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I did really like like how much the the documentary focused on like how much work John Cale had to do to make the music fit what she could do <laughs> that at the end of the day she she comes right. out sounding perfect but it's all because of how much he had to <laughs> manipulate the sound for her to sound that way right yeah i mean he he found just the right spot for her to seemed to be uh, a great chanteuse when she not so much. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. But it worked. She, she's, it worked. Like, she's literally, like, she's one of my all-time favorite vocalists because it doesn't work most of the time. But when it does, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, she's, like, she's so unique, right? Yeah, it's, it's no one, one really of those that, like, 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 when she misses, it's amazing that she could miss that far and still be as good as she is when she is. It's such a weird character yeah. in music for me. Totally, like Tom Waits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, there was there's a, a great it's a, it's a short little story, um, and this is, I guess, when she was maybe still with Velvet Underground, but also trying to do her own thing. She was involved with Jackson Brown, who was a very young songwriter at the time, and you know he he she covered his songs on her first solo album, and she was doing a, a cabaret show in New York, and here she is, this this tall, gorgeous blonde and it's, and she was just she was a model she had this incredible presence and she didn't have a band and she had a little cassette player a little tape recorder with uh, the backing instruments and, and she couldn't get it to work and she's standing there pressing buttons trying to make it work and crying and and, and you, you I, I heard that story and I thought and I thought that's the first time I've ever actually felt sympathy for her yeah I you know it was such a human such a human thing i kind of like like her now <laughs> like that's that's weird because like I, i've always appreciated her but she never seemed like she had that side so like it's really hard to like someone who doesn't seem to have that side right right but yeah she she had her human side although i think she kept it hidden but there you go that's a great story i love that story but uh, before we jump into the covers, which we have a lot of great covers, uh, what what do you look for in a cover song? Because like, in we'll we'll talk about it more as we go. Yeah, it's it, it's hard to find an improvement or imp an improving version of a Velvet Underground cover. But these are still great songs. So like, what right. what about these stood out to you in general? Well, I, I wanted I wanted a, a song. First of all, whoever's doing the cover has to show just baseline respect for the original. I have to get the sense when I'm listening to it that they enjoyed listening to the original, that it was a song that they loved and they thought, I have to sing this. And that it wasn't just some, oh, yeah, this will work uh, because this fits what I do. Oh. But uh but there has then to I feel like you might not like the heroin cover we played. <laughs> well, then, you mean so I 90s Billy Idol isn't going to do it? Yeah, I don't think that's going to be it. <laughs> well, well, we'll just have to see. Um, but yeah, uh, we'll, we'll but, see when we get there. <laughs> but I, I also, uh, I appreciate covers from people that either have had some kind of history with Lou or with the Velvet Underground uh, or just had a connection beyond just Here's a song that I like, and so I'll do it. Uh, and also, artists that can walk that line where they're showing respect for the original and, and really, really connecting with it, but at the same time, putting their own spin on it so you know, oh, this is them. You know, um, when, yeah. when I think back to when I was a kid, uh, I, you know, there were a lot of songs that I heard the Beatles do before I heard the originals, uh, you know, or I heard other other British bands doing before I heard the original Motown song or, or girl group song. 
And all those covers, you know, they love those records, they respected them, but at the same time, they put their own spin on it so you knew it was them. So I, I like that in a cover where I'm listening and I, yeah, this is, this is not, I'm, I know I'm not listening to the Velvet Underground. I know who I'm hearing here. Totally, totally. I think you know, like that's <laughs> a lot of times on this show, uh, we like to pick songs that are not, you know, songs that we necessarily love, like Angel of the Morning or Careless Whispers. And it's fun to to pick out the, you know, the covers that like actually improve on it, you know, or right. something like, um, I don't know, I can't think of another example, but <laughs> we, uh, well, you know, those are really fun to look at. And then Velvet Underground songs, like this, the core song is so great. So if you like looked at the, maybe the Lou Reed version of a lot of these songs, it's a little more interesting to listen to that versus a cover. But a lot of times when we listen to these, I think when we listen to these Velvet Underground songs and compare them to, uh, you know, a more um, like established artist that's trying to write a, make it a more traditional song. It's like the Velvet Underground is such like unique instrumentation. Like nobody did anything the way Velvet Underground did. So they either sound a little bit like they're copying their style or they're like distilling it down more than like kind of adding to it. I just think it's really yeah. interesting. This, this is going to be one of the more interesting episodes I think to listen back to. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I didn't think about that until you were saying it, but I, I think that's why none of the covers really surpass like I guess a couple of them did we'll talk about it when we get to them but like most of them did not surpass the originals for me because they were simplifying yeah. like even in the the most complex covers they had to kind of do away with the drone sounds and with like just the string instruments that were a constant in Velvet Underground and like without that it's it's less of a song just inherently right yeah, if we get to Venus in first and we get to that 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 one that I sent you before, oh. then you'll really see what I mean. <laughs> yeah. But we're starting with what what has always been my my favorite Velvet Underground song because I, I really only like picked five and was like, yeah, I get this band. I'm going to love this band when I eventually listen to this band. But, <laughs> you know. Not right now. It's a complicated band to get into, I think. Like, every time I tried to listen to a whole album, I was, like, not ready for it. Mm. Yeah, I I think all that this episode is doing for me is reminding me to finally do right, it. Right, totally. It's like, it's like I put off watching 2001 A Space Odyssey for 25 years of my life, and then I finally did and was like, nah, I should have watched this sooner. It would have been cool to have more of my life with this in it. Yeah, this is the pop music Space Odyssey 2000. <laughs> 2001. Yeah. Yeah, but we are starting. We're we're starting with Pale Blue Eyes and it's the the Patty Smith cover. It Yay. was recorded live at the Roxy. Thank thank you to Shava for her notes. These have been very helpful. <laughs> I well, I, I I do my best. Do my best. I love it. I can't wait to hear like what the connection is here with Patty Smith and the Velvet Underground. I know they're both New York, right? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, well, there was, I, I picked this for two reasons. One, Patty was a, a big Velvet fan and a Lou Reed fan, and it meant a lot, I think it meant a lot to her to cover him. For me personally, when this came out, I was a huge Patty Smith fan. I adored her. 
And even though I was a Lou Reed fan, I didn't know this song because I only had the first two Velvet albums. I don't know why I didn't have the other two. This is post John Cale, right? He's already gone. Uh, hmm. I don't think so, but let me double check. I think this is off the 1969 album, it looks like. Like, all of their albums are called The Velvet Underground. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah I think yeah, he's still like, yeah. he, he was He was gone by this point, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, D- Doug Yule was in the band. Right. Now. Yeah, I, I bought this bootleg at Ritter's Record Store in, in Bryn Mawr. Took like a bus and a train to get there. And I, it just blew me away. And then I heard the original and it really blew me away. Yeah, I, I love the original. And I, it, I, I, I kept trying to find where I heard it. Cause I, I know I, it seems so cinematic that I feel like it had to have been like the soundtrack of a very specific scene. And the only thing I could find that I know I've seen was the regular show movie. And I know it can't be that because that was 2015. The cartoon? I, I, I love that show. The show. The show does a great job of incorporating real songs and also making their own kind of sound alike genre songs. But they... They used it very well, and I remember it from that. But I know I had to have known it before that. <laughs> I, I, it I sounds feel, familiar. I feel like, I feel like it, the original got used as a closing song on some uh, television shows. You know, maybe hmm. an episode of The that's, that's what I'm picturing. It, it is sort of the thing that you would hear over closing credits. I love it. It's a beautiful song. I it's, it's, I felt the same way where I was like, I, Pale Blue Eyes, this sounds familiar. And then I listened to it, this still sounds familiar, but I couldn't place it. Right. Patty Smith is another one that someday I want to do a deeper dive on. She has an awesome album of covers. If if we do if we do her we might have to go like our Ramones episode where we did covers by because I mean her covers are are awesome yeah. she she brings so much to her covers yeah she does and and some of the things she used to do live back in the day were were pretty mind boggling see I, I've never been been a, a bootleg hunter and now I I kind of wish I had spent more time with that stuff because like I. I, I have I have bad hearing, so like a rough bootleg just doesn't work for me. I can't pull the nuance of it. But like now I just wish I did it. Like mm. who cares? Oh, bootlegs are the best. When I was a kid I liked the uh, I was like it, it jam band adjacent. And so like every once in a while I'd get my hands on a on like a Grateful Dead tape, uh, like a concert tape. And and it, I always loved being able to listen to you know, it was always like dubbed like seven times before you got your hands on it. So it was like <laughs> yeah. real fuzzy. And, but it, it, there's something special, I think, about being able to hear the 
uh, like something from back then that we had a concert, you know, it wasn't a million cell phones recording or you can see it from every angle. It's like that, that was one person that was somehow able to record that one night. This is the only recording of it. Right. Well, I, I will just say as an aside, uh, Dan, your Uncle Jeff back in the day was a major Grateful Dead uh, tape trader. He had a huge collection. I've heard that before. Yeah, that surprised me when I learned that. A huge collection of bootleg tapes that he used to trade with people. Because that, that's what you did, you know. You, you, you'd connect with people somehow and you'd find addresses and you'd trade tapes. And then it became trading CDs and then downloading torrents. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Torrent, torrents, I, I got into it a little bit. The... Uh... The in for for bootlegs for me recently has been uh, searching on YouTube for shows that I've been to, and I've actually found a couple, and it's really fun to watch because the quality is good enough that it's not messing with me with like the auditory problems, right? And I can just remember a time I experienced once. It's that that works for me. Oh, it's 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 great. Um... When I, I was very excited when I got my hands on the audio bootleg of my first big concert, which was Bob Dylan and the band uh, in 1972. Oh, wow. I've had vivid memories of what that show was like, and it was amazing to listen to it and, and hear that it jived with my memory, that, that it actually, I wasn't, it wasn't like fooling myself through the mist of time. I really did remember what it was like. That's amazing. Yeah, the the weird one for me in the in the, a similar direction was the the Miley Cyrus concert I went to, where she played the Electric Factory. Which for John, it's a like a, it's the bigger club venue, but it's a club. Okay, right. And trying to describe it to people as like like Miley Cyrus put on a rock show that made the factory feel like the smallest venue I've ever been to, and like nobody believed that. And then I was able to show them. And obviously it's Miley Cyrus and it's a, a thing of having a better budget than most people who perform there. But she literally just projected lights that made the place smaller. Like you could not <laughs> see past the lights. That's cool. And it was it was such a cool move that like I can't go there now. <laughs> that's, that's... Nothing else will feel the same as a Miley Cyrus show. Wow. And on the other yeah. hand, there are bootlegs that that of shows you remember and you have such golden memories and then you hear the bootleg and you realize that a lot of the excitement was just being there, seeing the band live. And when you actually hear the performance, eh, it's, it's lackluster. I have bootlegs for most of the class shows that I saw. None of them live up to the memories I have. And I think it was just because seeing them was amazing. But when you actually hear it, Mm, it, it, without the uh, without the visual, it, it doesn't hold up. That's more my experience. <laughs> it almost <laughs> never <laughs> matches what I remember. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, oddly enough, for our next one, we're we're going to another John Cale list song, but we're going to "What Goes On," and it's uh, covered by the Dictators. Yeah. I loved this one. Yeah, this one rules. Yeah. I don't know much about the dictators, Shiva. Um, they were a New York band that sort of came out right before punk hit. Um, and they were uh, 
they never got their due. Uh, is basically the brainchild of Andy Chernoff, this really brilliant writer, great songwriter, put together a band of Jewish rock and roll misfits from the Bronx, and uh, who all had chips on their shoulders because they were from the Bronx and they weren't, they weren't, <laughs> of course, <laughs> yeah, they weren't hipsters downtown, and uh, and they were just amazing, and they they loved Lou Reed, but in particular their drummer. Uh, Richie Peter, who was doing the vocals here, was just madly in love with Velvet Underground. And they do really... And this is another song that I that they introduced me to, because again, I didn't have this album. But I was going to see the Dictators and buying their bootlegs, and that's how I discovered this. And then I eventually thought, I need this album. I should have it and realize how good the songs are. That's awesome. Yeah, that that's another favorite thing uh, about covers for me. Or is like, this is a lot of times this, this, a, a great cover is like my entry into like a more complicated band or uh, music that's a little more accessible. It's like it's like a little it's like candy coated, and then I get to the like <laughs> yeah. the you know the nugget in the middle. <laughs> right. Right. I love how it's kind of sped up and yeah, like I hear what you mean about like kind of in the pre-punk like it's like fast rock and roll yeah i mean they're they're they had a they had punk attitude and they fit in well well they they played maxes and cbgb's but they were more straight on rock and roll but then again when you look at all those new york bands none of them sounded like the others you know the ramones didn't sound like talking heads didn't who didn't sound like television who didn't sound like the dead boys who didn't sound like the dictators they were all the individual that that's the thing i keep learning as i i get more into the uh, uh what are they the proto-punk is that what they call it now of like that genre that everyone's like these are the early punk bands and it's like yeah but None of these sound like what gets called punk. <laughs> this isn't Blink-182. What is this? Yeah. <laughs> I had well, the exact know, same thought when I first started trying to get into it. And like, it's taken me a really long time. Like now, finally, I feel like I'm there where I enjoy it. Like genuinely. Yeah. But I was like, every time I'd, I'd try it every couple of years and be like, still just sounds like rock and roll to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, 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 really, that's all it is. That's all right. it is. Uh, you know, I mean, when I when when that was starting up, I just thought of it as New York rock because that was what they had in common. They were all either New Yorkers or had moved to New York, and or in the case of the Dead Boys, just spent a lot of time there. And they were all playing these little clubs because uh, in the early '70s in New York, there were no clubs with bands playing original material. All these clubs had cover bands. And then you had these few clubs that featured bands playing their own music. And, yeah, and that's where you had first the New York Dolls and then the Dictators and Patti Smith and then the others. And it just grew from there. That's, I, it's a very similar story to like early comedy clubs where like they just needed to fill time on nights where not a lot of people were showing up. They're just like, we need to be open. So we'll have comedy and then comedy became like all they did like the improvs were not comedy clubs right now i i don't remember i i'm sure the band came up on our on our boat but 
I, I don't remember if they did, but this won't be the last time we hear from from a, a Bowie related thing on here. We're doing the Mott the Hoople cover of Sweet Jane. Yeah, they didn't sound familiar. Mott the Hoople. Did we talk about them with your other your other uncle? Yeah. Um I, I don't remember if they came up because they're, they're not necessarily in the, the cover territory of Bowie, just in the uh, kind of he's done a lot of stuff and like all the young dudes, I guess, would be the one that might fall into the category. But I don't really know if it does specifically. So that's why it might have come up, but I don't remember if it did. But yeah, he produced the album that this is on, and the Bowie-Lou Reed connection is a very fun one. Right. Did they date? Didn't they date or something? Maybe? Or is that a rumor? Okay, no. Yeah, Yeah, they, no, they, they didn't. They didn't. Okay. This was one where I, I kind of like the original better. I I agree with you there, but I love and like definitely not normally my style, but the last like minute of this song where they just kind of solo out of it, I thought was awesome. Like I thought that was such a just cool thing. Should we skip to the end? I, I want to do a little of the solo part. Yeah. Because it's going to get a lot worse after we hear this solo that I liked. (laughs) (laughs) Like, this is another one where, like, the song is great. The their take on it is great. It like it is a great rock and roll song and they do it like extra rock and roll. But like, there's something about the Velvet Underground is just so like they take a great pop song and they do it in such like a sort of unique interesting way that that when i hear it i'm like i kind of wish i was listening to the velvet underground there's a very real chance that i heard that one first really because i i definitely listened to all the young dudes very young the album I think I own that one. I don't own any Velvet Underground, but I do own all the young dudes. So the odds that I heard that one before are good, but that's neither here nor there. Was it before you heard the Cowboy Junkies? Uh, yeah, we're about <laughs> to hear that one now. <laughs> okay. Okay. You mentioned that Lou Lou really loved this version. Um, he he loved it because they were doing it not the way the Velvets originally recorded it, but the way they did it uh, on the live at Max's in 1969. That was right before Lou left, and it was and they so they did it slower the way the Cowboy Junkies do it. Plus. No one else who covers Sweet Jane ever does the middle eight. Uh, you know, the he- you know, heavenly you know, wine and roses. And Lou was really happy that they put that part in. So it did mean a lot to him. I didn't even think about that as I was listening through to the other ones. Because there are, uh, Sweet Jane yeah. is, I mean, one of their more popular songs. There are tons of Sweet Jane covers. 
I, I right. don't even think I, I caught that it was missing, but I was, just because I was listening to the covers over and over again, they all sounded basically the same. Right, and and you don't really think about it, but yeah, they 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 put it in. And I mean, I think of all the bands I've seen cover it. Um, Gang of Four, I remember seeing them in probably 1980, and uh, near the end of their set, they uh, they said, "Okay, we're going to play." The uh, the national anthem, national rock and roll anthem now, and they went into Sweet James. <laughs> and I like that. that. Um, but yeah, Cowboy Junkies did do that middle part. Um, but but she still she still sounds like she still sounds like she's barely awake. <laughs> yeah, and, it's the the song had its its pop culture moment because it was used in Natural Born Killers. And it's it's one of those right. scenes, very classic 90s, where it's ultra-violent, but scored with something like this. Right. So it, it really stood out. People really latched onto it. But I I mean, I'm not a huge fan of that movie, so maybe that's why it never really stuck for me. But yeah, I don't, I don't love it. That could be. This, and this vocalist... Um... My, my brother refers to vocalists like this and a, a lot of female artists you hear on stations like XPN as sad cowgirls. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know. my, my favorite description of these, and it's, I, I guess, a little off color, but it, it's a, it comes from a Beavis and Butthead Do America quote where the uh, hippie teacher is singing Fly With Me, Lesbian Seagull that I had a friend who, every time they hear a song like this, they're like, oh yeah, it's the lesbian seagull genre. <laughs> I haven't seen Beavis and Butthead do America, <laughs> so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's, it's, it's worth a watch. It's, right, it's funnier right. than it's probably remembered to be. Look <laughs> at my homework. Yeah, not super funny, but funnier than it's remembered to be. That's what I'll give it. <laughs> I mean, like the... Like I really know Lou Reed more for his like solo stuff, and I can see why he would say that this is closer to you know how he would do it. So, like I get that. that whole thing, <laughs> but it's like <laughs> but, you, know, you know over the course of his solo career. I mean, he you know of course he played it live. Uh, you, you do you that your you know your hits, uh, but he did it different ways. I mean, if you know. Um, if, if you know uh, Rock and Roll Animal, the, the incredible Lou Reed live album from yeah. 1973, from uh, and it has that that huge long instrumental intro, and then he comes out and the place goes wild, and it, it, it is still the most exciting live recording I've ever heard. And that version is not as different from the Velvets, but there's still you know something to it and then he's done all he did all kinds of versions of it um but uh yeah each each one had a little something special i love that i i love it when a band plays their song plays their song differently maybe that's the, the deadhead in me but i i it just makes it so much more fun i think i, I i'm not a huge fan of the the band or the song but one of the things I remember hearing about uh, Led Zeppelin that they got so tired of having to play Stairway to Heaven and like that was one that they always sound checked with and they would just play it in different genres and different styles. 
And I've always wanted to hear those. Like, I never need to hear that song again, but I want to hear their other versions of it. They're like, whose line is it anyway, Led Zeppelin? Yeah, exactly. Nice. <laughs> that would be, that would be, I never heard that, but that would be interesting to hear. Uh, that might actually make me willing to listen to it. <laughs> yeah, like, I, there's, there's just something interesting about that. Like, how much did they vary? And how much was that just like, Maybe it's an apocryphal story. I got, I, I want to have the full information on it, but I don't know that it exists. Yeah, which styles were they working with? Yeah. They played it as Deep Purple? It's not like there was that many styles, right? Now, we're, we're going to go from the Cowboy Junkies, and somehow we got through that whole song. I don't know. I don't know why we played the whole song. We did it. Uh, Apologies or congratulations, whether you like it or not, I guess. But one of one of my favorite songs and covered by one of my favorite people, White Light, White Heat, the David Bowie cover. All right. This is such a cool song. I so I listened to uh the only reason I know really anything about Velvet Underground right now is because I listened to the other podcast, No Dogs in Space. I listened to their like five part series about the Velvet Underground and they explained a little bit about White Light, White Heat and it made it, I loved it. I thought that was so cool. And like all the dynamic changes and the, um, they said that it's supposed to be like a symbolism for, you know, doing heroin and going up and coming down and freaking out. And I just thought that was really interesting. They, they do a thing on here that it, it's started standing out to me for uh, uh, Time of the Season, the zombie song, where instead of echoing the chorus, they lead it with the background vocal. And I, I love that. It, it's such a cool dynamic for a song to do that. that that's true. And by the way, that is your Aunt Davis' favorite song, Time of the Season. Really? I, I knew you Absolutely. were a big fan. I didn't know that, that that's where it landed for you. Yeah. Well, you know, you people tend to attach to what they discover kind of early on. I was about 11 or 12 when that was getting a lot of play on the radio, and I just fell in love with it, and it has remained my favorite. But... You know, I have a thousand other favorite songs, but that is <laughs> yeah. a good song. It's so good. It's so good. And it's such an interesting song to listen to. Like, there's so much going on in it. And the original is only, it's not even three minutes long. But listening to it feels like the original one. It feels like a, like a journey, you know? Yeah. And David Bowie does it in such like a rock god you know, style. Oh yeah, oh, this yeah. this is this is like rock and roll Bowie at its best. Right, and but also you do get you do know that he loved the song, that he loved yeah. it, he loved Lou, you know, and he wanted to, you know, he he, he wanted to to do do justice by him. I mean, he was. Like his entire career, he was a fan of of Lou Reed. Like he 
Was was it his first? Did, didn't he cover on the first album? Didn't he cover them? I have to look that up. I think that's true. I think he covered them on his first album. I love it. I love it. I think it's such a it's such a great version. Yeah, that's that's. I, that's why I really recommended this version. It's, uh, you know, there's, yeah. there's such great music that the bands recorded live in the BBC studios. Uh, just amazing stuff. Oh, it was Bowie, Bowie with Riot Squad. They covered Velvet Underground before he would solo David Bowie. He had already covered the Velvet Underground. <laughs> right. If Elvis and Buddy Holly are the Cain and Abel of rock and roll, Bruce Springsteen and Zachariah, Iggy Pop is Methuselah, of course, Neil Young is the wise prophet Ezekiel, what does that make Get in the Garage? Well, I think that makes Get in the Garage the one-stop shop for all know-how, history, countdowns, disagreements, agreements, and pretty much everything that you want, you, you want to hear about music. Get in the Garage. Get in the Garage. A music program from the Wasted Robot Network. I was just learning to love. So we're going from from that all-time great version to uh, the one that I've been dreading the entire time, but eh, well, you picked. <laughs> maybe I'll even cut it out, but I think it's a conversation. We're doing the Billy Idol heroin cover. I don't think I've ever heard this. Yeah, it's th this is off the album Cyberpunk in 1993. Yeah, it's... It's the 1993 for the internet age of 1993. <laughs> like, it's not the internet that we knew, but it's the internet that they thought it would be in 1993, apparently. That's what he was going for. <laughs> oh my gosh, there's intros, there's interludes, there's outros. This must be a wild album to listen to all the way through. Yeah, he, he pulls from, uh, I think he quotes Patti Smith on this one, I think is who the chorus is attributed to. <laughs> Although it's a quote I've heard a bunch, but I think that's what I read was it was Patti Smith. I see one of the songs. I, this is a Neuromancer album. He, Billy Idol read Neuromancer in 1992. <laughs> it's like, we're making an album. <laughs> it, it, it sounds like a disco version of heroin. Yeah. And that's yeah. not really anything, anything the world needed. <laughs> yeah, as, as I say to all our guests, we... Uh, we focus on the good and the bad because we want to get the full picture. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and it also it also just speaks to the large appeal of the Velvet Underground that it attracts so many different people who want to cover them. Um, I have a quick Billy Idol story for you. Oh, absolutely. It's very quick. Um, this is this is me at my name dropping best, and I apologize, but I can't help it. No, please. Uh, yeah, all, all day, do it. <laughs> there was this great club in Brooklyn, uh, the Brooklyn Zoo, in the early 80s, 
this little tiny club at the edge of Brooklyn. And I had a friend who lived near there, so I would go up once in a while for shows. I went up to see, we went to see Public Image uh, play this club. And before they came out, they're playing music. Billy Idol came up and asked me to dance. And I what? danced with Billy Idol. <laughs> That's oh, amazing. Wow. I, I, and... And, you know, and we danced for like a couple minutes and then he just kind of smiled and waved and went off. And for years, I thought to myself, I wonder if that, if that really happened. And then <laughs> I was, you know, everything's online anymore. And I found a site that was a Brooklyn Zoo history site that had all this ephemera and stories about the Brooklyn Zoo. And there's all these pictures of Billy Idol at the public image show talking about the night he came and hung out at the club. And I thought, well, there you go. I, I wasn't making it up. I really did dance with him. That's amazing. That's so that's cool. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Now we're we're going from that that Billy Idol cover to, you know, I think I can I can safely say the first good cover from the Velvet Underground Amico album we're getting to the Garland Jeffries "Waiting for the Man" cover. Ah. There's Very a few good. here I'm excited to talk about. Yeah. Gar Garland Jeffries goes back, went back a long way with Lou. They were students together at Syracuse University. Uh, oh, really? They were both students. They were both students of Delmore Schwartz, who was a writer and teacher there, who was a huge influence on both of them as songwriters. Uh, and there's a, a great picture floating around of Lou and, and Garland in the '60s in the uh, school library. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, Delmore Schwartz is a name I only heard in the documentary for the first time. Yeah. So if, if, if anyone's entitled to cover Velvet Underground, Garland definitely on the right. That's awesome. Yeah, I'd never I'd never heard of him before he was on this list. That's really interesting. I didn't know that he'd grew up, grown up with him. Actually, it says here that his, uh, another he's notable for his cover of 96 Tears. Yeah. Yeah, and and he's a great songwriter too. He's very he's one of those people that sort of comes and goes on the radar but has had a, a long great career. The one I'm gonna have to dig into some more. Yeah, it looks like he was putting stuff out in twenty seventeen, so not too long. Yeah, this is cool. I have a couple more waiting for the mans. I want to run past y'all real quick. Okay. I found, <laughs> I I did a little bit of research before, uh, before Shiva gave us her, um, this treasure trove of, of, of research. <laughs> I only got like five songs in. So waiting for the man is one of them. I, I looked into pretty deeply. Um, this one is by celibate rifles. This is a nineties. Well, these are punk bands. It was like a punk band, and I think uh, 1990 this came out. I don't know if it just reminds me of that, like, New York kind of early punk um but i don't know this one really did it for me i i i didn't like it at first but i i did the 
the group vocal there I liked. That, that kind of pushed me back in the positive. Yeah, it's pretty good. I like that they raised the price of the heroin. Instead of being twenty. <laughs> I didn't even catch that. <laughs> yeah. they, they updated it for for the, the yeah. era. <laughs> yeah. I catch that either. Like to make for the kids. <laughs> so, I like that one. There's an even weirder one by a band called Bored. I think it's also I, in 90s. I did band. like this one. I thought this one was cool. It's a lot weirder. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Doesn't this like weird sort of low tone spoken word with a sort of falling apart like garage rock behind it? That I thought was really fun. This feels like it would be a good version for a soundtrack. Oh yeah, like it, well, it's it would, like it would be weird. like a, a credits song, like not not the song that leads you into the credits, but like just something to play while the credits are rolling. Like I think it would be a good like mid soundtrack song. Totally. Yeah, the first like one or two times I listened through this, I like I was like it was a little too weird, and then as I kept kind of getting into it, I kept coming back to it. So that was worth worth showing off. I just wanted to play a quick clip of those before we keep moving on. Let's see. From there, we are going to the Modern Lovers, which is, it's fun to see the Modern Lovers show up. Their cover of Foggy Notion. I really like yeah. this. I think the Modern yeah. Lovers are so cool. I'm going to skip ahead yeah. past his banter. <laughs> the really interesting thing about this is that when they were playing this, Foggy Notion had never been released officially. Uh, but Jonathan Richmond was a huge Velvet Underground fan, and, and they play a lot in Boston. He would go see them all the time. And he knew it from their shows, and I guess maybe from the bootleg. I mean, that Foggy Notion didn't come out officially until when that until that VU CD came out, I think, in the 90s. Wow, really? I didn't know that. I, yeah, I saw a so. bunch of those. Sonic Youth had one of those, too, where they were like decades ahead of the original release of something. I, I, I'd have to go back and go through my research and figure out what it was. But there was a lot of those, like, not released until, like, compilations and B-sides well after they were covered. Yeah, I'm I'm wrong about that. It was actually, actually was released in the 80s, in 1985. But still, that's more than a decade after... Modern Love yeah, this, recorded this. Yeah, this cool. is from 72, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, if I try to play right. something, I need to listen to it about a thousand times. If I hear it live, I'm going to have a good, a hard time even list, like recognizing it when it comes on the radio again. But it also it does impressive. feel like a very Jonathan Richmond thing to do, to be like, <laughs> no, I'm doing that one. That's the one right. I want. You guys don't know this one? That's mine now. <laughs> and, well, this, this is a great example of an artist who shows absolute love and respect for the original and puts his own stamp on it at the same time. Yeah, it, oh, it's yeah. still very much them. But I think they, they do have the benefit of, like, most people aren't going to have a preconceived idea of the song, so they really have the freedom to put a stamp on it. Yeah. Right. Nobody sounds like Jonathan Richmond either. So. Yeah, th yeah, this is the second time this season that he's come up, and I, uh, I feel like that's just leading us to an episode about oh totally 
Totally. Did I ever tell you the story that I, I was in a band in uh, right after college, and um, we sent our our CD into the uh, like a Chicago reviewer, and um, the the guy who sang sounded a little bit like Jonathan Richmond, but I'd never heard of him before. It was before I'd ever heard of the Modern Lovers, and w- weirdly, he sounds almost exactly like Jonathan Richmond. And uh, th- his review said something like, um, "It may be." realized that I'd never asked the question, what would Jonathan Richmond singing in Pearl Jam sound like? And I'm still not sure I really want to hear it, but <laughs> oh, what an amazing review. That's, that's awesome. I, yeah. I think as the singer, I would take a compliment. As a band, I don't know that I would. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Yeah, and I'm and meanwhile I'm thinking I don't think that's something we need. I, I, I think, <laughs> yeah, you know, we're we're I, modern lovers was absolutely perfect as they were. I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't yeah. monkey with that. That's right. So so from there we are going to rock and roll with a great cover by Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. I really love right. this. And I do have to tell you, now, we know that Lou loves Cowboy Junkies and there's other people on this list that he loves, but when he released his list of his 100 favorite songs, there was a lot of doo-wop. He loved doo-wop. There was a lot of jazz. There was only, there was very, very little rock and roll, and the only cover of any of his songs was this. This was his pick in his top 100 songs of all time. Wow. That's amazing. He yeah. picked a cover of his own band. <laughs> it was a top 100 songs. Were, were awesome. there any Lou Reed or Velvet Underground songs on the list? <laughs> no, no, no. It was just that because he thought this was so, so perfect. That's amazing. It, it does bring something to it. And I don't want to say just the cowbell, but like it really <laughs> does put it in a different place. It does. It's yeah, this... Somebody go. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Chiva. No, I mean it's just it's a fantastic cover. It really is. When I uh, when I told my friend who who knows way more about Velvet Underground and Lou Reed than I do, and he's the one who went to see their reunion tour in Europe. When I told him I was doing this, he said. There's one song you have to include. I don't know if you're including it, but you cannot do the show without it. And it was this song, and I was happy to tell him, that's eh, already on my list. Don't, don't worry. <laughs> I, I do also enjoy that it's this far into the episode. So he's going to be listening like, did they really include it? <laughs> Good, make him listen to the end. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and he is responsible for the version that I sent you. I'm interested to hear only his take on the whole episode when it comes out. <laughs> Anybody else, I don't care. I'm sure he will tell you, he'll tell me all the things I got wrong. That, that's tell what the we email. want. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we are blanketingcovers at gmail.com. I want to know more. I am happy to be wrong. Correct me. <laughs> yeah, tell us the ones that we miss. I, I love it. This is like, I don't know, the, the farther we get into this, the more I think like, they just wrote they just wrote such good songs like i kind of want to hear all of them in every genre 
You see, that's that's the weird thing about how they're they're so often kind of lumped into that art band thing because of the the Warhol connection. But like, they just wrote good rock songs that happen to have different instruments. Right. Well, that's what makes them a little bit harder to like. Yeah, get your head around. I think when someone's like, "You got to check out the Velvet Underground. They're so good." They are so good, but it's like hidden a little bit behind like a kind of a yeah, an interesting interesting arrangements, like interesting uh, instrumentation, like sometimes even interesting time, not time signatures, but you know, like tempos and... Again, I don't know what that means. (laughs) How fast it is. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's going to be my new running joke for this episode because I don't have a mask singer to go to here. I could have referenced Johnny Rotten. He was on this past season, but I'm not going to shoehorn that in. But... uh, Dave Navarro hasn't been on The Masked Singer yet? Yeah, I don't think we had Dave Navarro yet. You know, maybe. He might have been. He's perfect. He's the perfect kind of celebrity for it. (laughs) But forget that. We don't have one this episode, whether he was or not. He's dead to me for some reason. I don't understand. But uh, we're going to... I can't stand it anymore. I I should... There's probably a better transition. I should have looked at the list before I started that, because I probably could have... I can't stand it anymore about it. It doesn't matter. The half Japanese version of the song. Let's hear it. <laughs> we'll fix it in post. This, this is perfect. This is perfect. One of your uncle's favorite bands. Really? Is half Japanese? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Is this what all half Japanese sounds like? Because I, I thought I knew who they were. And I was like, I don't know after listening to this. This, this is... Pretty much what they sound like, yeah. Okay. And, and and this was, as with Foggy Notion, this was a song that was not released officially when Half Japanese recorded it. They got it probably from the bootleg. That's fascinating. That's awesome. So yeah, cool. I, <laughs> I love this. <laughs> Don't you feel like so uh, spoiled now? It's like everything... Just find everything on YouTube and Spotify. I want to see every concert I've ever been to. It's all there. I don't even yeah. have to work for it. Like, yeah, you, why, why even go to concerts anymore, right? <laughs> you, you kids don't know how hard it was back in the day. <laughs> that, I think, that's probably a, the, the difference in perception for the Velvet Underground, too, because, like, historians are the ones who lump them into the, the art band thing, but they're also the ones who saw them doing their heavily improvised performances and yeah. being part of the Warhol product. That like, like, all I have to go on is the music. And that isn't that, but I get why that's the perception. Yeah, and just the recorded right. music, right? Which like wasn't even most of what the Velvet Underground were, at least from what I gather. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, that was that. That was. I mean, Warhol was significant for them. He did a lot for Lou as a songwriter, uh, but that was just a small part of their history. It was only the one album, you know. And uh, and and that's that's the thing you were talking before about all the things that make Velvet Underground so interesting and. A lot of it is just that Lou Reed was an incredible songwriter and he could write for just about any genre. I mean, people have this image yeah. of him as everything's about drugs or everything is really dark and, and drony. And he wrote happy songs. He wrote sweet love songs. He wrote everything. 
Yeah, even the songs that are kind of in that darker subject matter, the way he gets after them poetically, they don't feel as like desperate as you would normally kind of describe a drug song. Oh, like yeah. They're, they're right. just experiential. Right. Well, you know, his his goal from the start was to write rock songs the way other people write poetry or novels. He he saw it as another form of literature and that was just the form he chose to work in. That's what I that's what I'd heard too. I I did you ever hear if um if that that the professor that you mentioned it, did he ever have any thoughts about like Lou Reed's uh, songs was he like proud of his his songs as like his his mentor you know that that's a really good question and i should know the answer and i don't know uh so that's that's something we're just going to have to look for yeah, yeah. Uh, that's something i'll look for someday because like because he he was like right on the edge of the beginning of rock and roll right where like people nobody didn't nobody consider rock and roll art when he was when Lou Reed was starting, it, it was a uh, yeah. it was a weird time for it because it was people were just starting to pick up the tempo and like the stuff that gets called early rock and roll, but nothing really quite like this. Yeah, yeah I it's mean, just interesting. And, but, <laughs> you know, he, you know, when he was starting, I mean, the Beatles were not art. That yeah, was right, just yeah. the latest. That was the latest fad, and it was going to fade in a couple of months, and we would move on to the next fad. And Bob Dylan was something in a, in a totally different realm. And within a couple of years, it was all mushrooming, and it was all, you know, it was starting to dawn on people. This is actually a legitimate form of music, like jazz or blues or opera. This is, this is its, own, its own thing. And it's going to keep going, and it's going to have uh, it's going to have some sort of lasting power. Yeah, I mean, as soon as you see it kind of happening as an East Coast West Coast kind of thing, where rock and roll was growing like equally but in different ways, then I think people started seeing the genre as a whole of like, oh, it can give me all of this, like <laughs> right. When you know the Velvet Underground went out to California, and they did, didn't do that well, they felt really out of place. Uh, but uh, Jim Morrison went to see them, and then all of a sudden you had the Doors, and there's Jim Morrison in black leather, dancing around the way of oh, uh, the way I'm 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 blanking out. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking out on names, but uh, he he picked up a lot of his shtick from seeing the Velvet Underground, and when the doors <laughs> came out, yeah. you know, and and you know Lou was just so horrified. It's like this is you know great. They 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 took they cherry picked stuff from us, and now they're getting airplay on AM radio, and and really it's it's. It's that I can't believe looking back that the Velvet Underground couldn't crack radio. They, they yeah. just couldn't get any. And you listen now and you think there was stranger stuff on the radio than this. <laughs> oh, like the doors. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that, you know, okay. yeah. 
wouldn't expect to hear heroin or Lady Godiva's operation, but why not play Sunday morning? Yeah. They're, they're every bit the, the pop song. I mean, even like, I mean, I, I have a hard time believing, and we'll, we'll, I'll talk about it more when we get to it, that Femme Fatale wasn't the biggest song in the world. I know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it should have been. It should have been. Well, you know, I feel the same way about the Ramones. I mean, nowadays they're in commercials and everybody loves them. And that's, and that's great. Uh, unfortunately, they're all deceased now. But, uh, yeah. but I, I just could not understand why the Ramones didn't get played on the radio back in the day. It, it, it didn't make sense. I mean, that was the thing we, we learned on our, our episode. We did a Ramones episode in our, our first season, just doing the songs that they covered. And it was mostly just kind of early rock and roll and pop songs. Soul songs, and, yeah. And they, they didn't change them that much. <laughs> and they still sounded like Ramones songs, which just shows that they weren't that far from what was working on the radio. Yeah, they weren't doing a sound. They were just playing them the best they could. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, well, I mean, that's true. When you listen to Ramones songs, you know, they're Ramones songs that could have been Rolling Stone songs in 1965. Uh, yeah. There's Ramones songs that could have been, you know, the, the Ronettes could have could have done I Want to Be Your Girlfriend, just turned the wording around, and it would have been a great song for Ronnie Spector. In- oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the... the- Ramones and Ronnie Spector world was open to me on this episode. I had no idea it existed, but now I've I've gone to that uh, Joey Ramone produced album, and so it's it's a wonderful world right. to be over there. I, I'm I'm very happy that that this this show exists. For, Your for eyes are like open. That. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, going back to uh, the the point of Lou Reed, just kind of finding himself over and over and over in in music and just being so good at encapsulating like every feeling and i i i want to say just chronologically this is where he really finds it because it's also where john kill has left the band and he's basically running the show but it's it's candy says which is the first song on the second Velvet Underground album, <laughs> second titled Velvet Underground album, but the Anthony and the Johnsons, I, 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 I love this yeah. band. Her voice is just like <laughs> ridiculous. Well, I mean, first of all, just just consider an incredible song about being trans, written in the sixties. Yeah, that that, that it, that's. It, Blew my mind seeing when this came out. Yeah, and then, but yeah, then you you, you re, I remember that for most of the seventies, Lou was uh, Lou's partner was a trans woman, Rachel. Right, right. Uh, and as far as Anthony doing it, uh, when Lou did a, a week of shows, a handful of shows in New York. 2006 at St. Anne's in Brooklyn. It was the Berlin album, uh, and they, they and Julian Schnabel filmed it, and it's a documentary film for the show. And basically, playing Berlin, start to finish, and then did a small set of other songs. He brought Anthony out to sing this, and he said, he said, you know, 
This was a Velvet song, and this is one of my favorite songs that I've written. But I've never sung it because I don't think I can do it justice. And I am so happy to have found Anthony because he can do it justice, and I want him to sing. That's amazing. Wow. That's amazing. I, 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 when I first heard Anthony and the Johnsons, I think they go by Ahoni now. Um, and I think they dropped the Anthony and the Johnsons. They uh, are, uh, apparently they were big in like the New York, um, like black box theater scene, cabaret scene in the late nineties, I think early two thousands. Um, and that's where like that voice kind of developed um, in like a kind of a theatrical way. Uh, I could just listen to or sing like anything. <laughs> she does an awesome knocking on heaven's door. I have a seven inch. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's ah. awesome. Ah. I want to hear her do like a really dumb song. See if like that works, you know? <laughs> Party in the USA, you know? Yeah, that would be really fun. I would love that. <laughs> oh, I don't want to end this. <laughs> I know, I know. I keep waiting. To... All right, I'm fading out. All right. Well, I mean... Luckily, we're going from there to what is my favorite Velvet Underground song. So I'll get over it quickly. We're, we're, we're jumping into a chunk of Femme Fatale. We're going to start with Dolly Mixture. Yay. Yes. I, this was so cool. This was such a cool find. I can't wait to listen to more Dolly Mixture. They were, they were such an incredible band. These sweet girls. They put out a handful of singles uh, and just didn't... Well, I mean, I, I don't know how they did over there. They're from they're from the UK. I don't know how I discovered them, but I was just crazy about them. And, uh, and then some years ago, a CD came out that collected all the singles and, you know, in an album. Uh, but they, they didn't get... They, they hardly got any attention over here um, compared to some of the other bands at, their, at that time. But listen to them. I mean, they're just these, these sweet girls, but they know what they're doing. Yeah, this is, I love this. Yeah, I, I can't wait to listen to some more. They, uh, according to their Spotify bio, they, they sang back up with, um, on the, uh, the guy from The Damned, Captain Sensible. Uh, on mm -hmm. his solo yeah. songs, they sang back up for him. Yeah. Yeah, they sound so raw. They like uh, sweet, but raw, you know? Like, that's why, like, it says in here that it's kind of like a pre-punk, pre-like Riot Girl. Um, well, definitely pre-Riot Girl. Uh, they were, their singles were coming out, I guess, I don't know, I'm thinking like 80, 81. So, yeah, I can't wait to listen to some of their uh, their originals. 
Oh, because they have great, great originals, great songs. And they could actually carry a tune. Um, I, I, I come from a musical family. My mother was an opera singer. My brother's a musician. Um, um, I can sing. And I get impatient with bands with, 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 with that, that can't sing. I mean, it's one thing if they're sort of interpreting a song really well and it's a cool effect. But at the end of the day, you should be able to carry a tune. And they could. Yeah. Yeah, I... I, I, I love that version so much that that was a very, very happy surprise for me here. Cause I, th this is one that I did not think would be elevated past the original for me. And that one might be there actually. Well, well yeah. then my work here is done. I, I oh, brought yeah. this to you. I've, I've accomplished, I've accomplished something. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, along the same lines, I wanted to play some of this big star version because it, that, that's it where reminds I was gonna go me, next, yeah. It reminds me a little yeah. bit of Dolly Mixture, right? Where it's like it's also raw. I mean, you know, big star like Alex Chilton, right? It's like everything he does kind of sound like that, where it's like he's maybe not trying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or I think he's just actually drunk, but um it's yeah, it's like it's like very musical. It all sounds like it's like kind of one take. Right. I was actually torn between the Dolly Mixture and Big Star versions. And I went with Dolly Mixture just because I had loved them so much uh, back in the day. And I didn't know that they had done this cover. So, but no, the Big Star version is great. No, I'm glad you did because I may have overlooked the Dolly Mixture one. Uh -huh. I, I, I probably would have went Big Star just because it's Big Star. or just one of those that like... Oh, I know them. Sure. We're, we're, we're getting after a lot of songs. I'm going right. to pick the one band I know. <laughs> oh, just wait, though, because there's a lot of cool ones. I won't, yeah. I won't play any of them too long, but I love how, like, meandering uh, Big Star's version is. I, I do want to, before we, we go through the ones that we are going to play, I just want to run through a list of like the people who have done this song that like we probably we probably could have done an episode on this all with bands that everybody has heard of oh yeah uh, we're like definitely. I mean, nico and john kale have both done their own individual versions of it teenage fan club right. did it i don't think we're doing that one right no we're not doing that no, one no it's uh, fine it's good but it, it yeah. wasn't as notable Susanna Hoffs did it. Elvis Costello did it. Girl Elvis Costello did, did it, it though later in his career. He did it like oh, last yeah. year. Well, it's still like ten years ago. But yeah, was it ten years ago? Oh, geez. Pro probably. <laughs> to probably me, that's more, like last year. But, uh... <laughs> I did have a rule when I put the list together. I avoided covers from any members of Velvet Underground. Yeah, we we usually so go by that rule here. Yeah. If, yeah. Any of them are good I, enough. I mean, we we play them and mention them quick, whatever. But like usually they don't right. improve on their own versions. Right. Yeah, I just thought, well, that's that's sort of cheating. So I left them out. I agree. Dan there, wants to someday do a, a whole episode of just uh, bands that have done done their own covers oh, with yeah, somebody else, like Dolly Parton. <laughs> yeah, where they feature on a cover of their own song. We're we're eventually <laughs> going to do that when we when we build enough of an arsenal for an episode. But I. <laughs> It, it's such an ironic joy for me. I'm like, oh, you know this one? What What are the odds you know this song? <laughs> All right, I'm going to move on to Tom Tom Club. Tom Tom Club did a really cool one, too. Which, they don't have a ton of songs in general. 
between they are are, are they the entire Talking Heads sans David Byrne? Or is there more to them that separates them from the Talking Heads? It, it, it's it's uh, Chris Brand. It's 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 Chris Franz and Tina Weymouth with her sister or sisters. I've lost track of that. Uh, I think I think it's just Chris and Tina from from Talking Heads. Oh, uh, okay. I think it's a really pretty. I like how they kind of made like a gentle surf rock sound somehow. Like, I didn't know that that was a, a genre you could get to. Yeah, I, as, as it's playing, I'm thinking I could I could I could see this popping up in the middle of some mid 60s movie and, and it would have yeah. fit. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't even know if I, I don't have anything like profound to say about it. I just, it's it's like, I guess it just is different. It's just so different from the original. It's different from Dolly Mixture. It's different from the big star. And it like, it's, it's, uh, it has like a sheen to it, you know? Right. It's also making me think uh, a huge missed opportunity. Nancy Sinatra should have covered it. Oh, oh yeah. Can you imagine that? That would have that would have been incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Or you can even hear like Tiffany playing it in malls. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm just gonna keep rolling through. Uh, I don't know if I can yeah, skip just over keep, any of these. Then. Just keep rolling through. Yeah. Uh, REM did one in the '80s. Uh, yeah. Michael Stipe comes back later on. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll we'll talk more about REM later. I think. Yeah, and this is just like. I, I, listening to it it just sounds like an rem song it sounds like they wrote this yeah. song and it doesn't really sound that much like the other ones there's something about rem and like this era where they were just so fully realized as rem they're like later they kind of get away from it they try to experiment they do other genres and new instruments and stuff but like this era they're just so confidently them that I feel like they could have played anything and it would have been an R.E.M. song. Oh, yeah. And actually looking at yeah. this a little closer, this may be an album of covers because they also do Pale Blue Eyes. And it looks like they do Toys in the Attic, which I think is an Aerosmith song. Well, this is... Yeah, they, <clears throat> yeah, they, they, did, they did several uh, Velvet covers. And I think, and I think, I think that is from a, a cover CD. I'll have to dig into this more. Yeah, they did a they did a Pale Blue Eyes also, which is a pretty good version. Yeah. Right. Anyway, I just thought it was. I think I think it's fascinating that REM did this, and it doesn't sound sounds like an REM song. But, doesn't but, sound like a yeah. Lou Reed song. Also, I, I do want to clarify: Dead Letter Office is a collection of B sides and rarities and other stuff from oh. earlier. I mean, it came out in late 80s so there's not a ton of stuff to pull from for that but it's a full album of b-sides and covers got it that makes more right. sense <laughs> yeah I, michael stein's voice fits interestingly well i think with with uh velvet underground like blue reed songs oh yeah yeah he definitely well in the same way that jonathan richmond does even though they have very different voices but it, it's that same 
sort yeah. of, I mean, you, you know that they listened to these records when they were young. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I wouldn't have ever said the same thing about Jonathan Richard because uh, nobody sounds like him, but you're totally right. Like, yeah, he like makes it his, his own and it sounds like he wrote it himself. Right. Now, so this next one is Aloe Black. Do you want to talk about Aloe Black? This this really surprised me that he did a version of this. Like, this does not feel like the territory you find him in. Like, mm -hmm. he, he feels like one of those type of singers where if you looked up his covers, all of them would be Christmas. Like, Oh, yeah, yeah. This feels like he should have been on It Was a Very Good Year last episode. Yeah. And like he's he's great. He has a great voice. People probably know him from the the man or I Need a Dollar or Wake Me Up, which was probably his biggest hit. But this was so surprising. <laughs> I don't know if it's an, an improvement on any of the ones we've done, but I was I was happy to know it existed. It just fits so well in every in every style. It just shows that it's a perfect it's a perfect song. Yeah. I do love, I love that little that, uh, playing with the tempo there. That's what I was just gonna say. Yeah, I love that it's not just like a straight ahead. No, it's, it's it's like a rock and roll walk. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder how many uh, like R and B ish versions of Velvet Underground are out there. I didn't come across a ton, but I wasn't specifically looking for that. So I, I wonder how this much was of that. The I only skipped. one I found, and I was looking through the most covered versions. I went down probably six songs. So I didn't get that far. Um, but surprisingly few. I didn't find at least not any that I, I thought was worth sharing. Um, Sharon Van Etten. I'm just plowing through it. Sharon Van Etten. Is yeah, next. go for it. She is just like, she's amazing. And she does her own like dreamy, very slow version of this song. I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit. It almost sounds like slowed down, you know? I was gonna say, this sounds like whatever the opposite of effect of like the chipmunk says. <laughs> Someone has their finger on the record. Yeah. And it pretty much stays like this. I, yeah. Sharon Van Etten is, she's awesome. And yeah, I don't know. I just think she's awesome. The last one, and then where I promise we're out of Femme Fatale. Yeah, we're out of Femme Fatale after this one. <laughs> is Ty Segal, who does like sort of noisy psych pop. Uh, and whenever I come across a Ty Segal cover, it's like hard not to play it because nothing ever yeah. sounds like it.
It's weird because I know he's American, so the I accent know. is putting me off. <laughs> but I do like the fuzz. I love the fuzz. I mean, all this stuff kind of sounds like that, uh, but I, I just I have a hard time not not playing it when I come across it. And now we're out of Femme Fatale. We're out. We're done with Femme Fatale. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for going on that trip with us, Shiva. <laughs> oh, dear. Now we're, we're going from there to New Age, which is one of the ones that I, I just heard the song for the first time doing this. And I, I'm very happy with it. I'm very happy that this is a thing I know in my life now. But also, the cover <laughs> by Rachel Sweet is great. So good. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was kind of mind-blowing cuz she her first album she was a high schooler in in Akron, Ohio. Stiff Records got a hold of her and she was this teen sensation. And she did originals and well that people wrote for her, but she did a lot of covers. But then her second album, she goes and covers a Velvet Underground song. And, and not one that's that well-known from, from Loaded, and it just blows everyone's mind. Yeah, this, this doesn't sound like a teenager. That's weird. <laughs> that's weird to me. Yeah. Like... Well, she, she, didn't, she didn't sound like one right from the start. She was, she was like a, a new wave Brenda Lee. Oh, wow. That's a great comparison. She doesn't really sound like a Stiff Records artist either. Oh, is she really? Well, you know, I don't know if she was still on Stiff at this point. Um, no, the but, one that I uh, played it off says Stiff Records. It's just funny. It's like okay. it doesn't sound like what I would think of. They went with everybody. Okay, I thought <laughs> they had like a specific sound. I probably just don't know Stiff Records well enough. <laughs> no, it was. Whatever, whatever they thought would be fun, whatever couldn't get signed by somebody else. That's awesome. I love that. I'm looking at the rest of her covers here on uh, secondhand songs, and it's like B A B Y, the Carla Dude, Thomas. I, someday song. I want to do an episode of that song. <laughs> That's a great song. I I I love that song. It's a great album too. I I have that one. That was her first album. But she went on to become uh, a songwriter, a producer. Uh, she pops up a lot on, on movie soundtracks. She's, I mean, she's, her, she's more behind the scenes, but she's everywhere. Oh, wow. She's covered Stranger in that house. Yes, she did. And I, you know, I'm going to have to go listen to that. That's What is that? It's an Elvis Costello song. Mm, That's such right. a weird choice for an Elvis Costello cover. That's I want to hear that. Well, on the first album and and the tour, the tour that that behind it, she was working sort of a pop rock pre-sound. She put okay. and she, she did, so that that song kind of fit with, with what she was doing. Uh, I think I was kind of hoping it would come more like what we're listening to, but I'm probably still going to like this a lot. <laughs> yeah, this is another one I have to look more into. 
Oh wow, she also covered the damned. <laughs> this is yeah. I'm, I'm very intrigued. A Rachel Sweet episode is in our future too, it sounds like. Yeah, right. Covers by we'll we'll do that one, why not? But uh Oh you yeah. have to have Please let me come back for that one. Oh, oh definitely. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> I can't think of anyone else who would want to do that one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, you know, I've I've mentioned him a couple times, but uh, when she first time she came to Philadelphia, your uncle and I were there. Not, I mean, we we were there as friends. We weren't uh, dating at that point, but uh, yeah, everybody came to see her. I mean, he's obviously more than welcome to come on the show. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, be, be careful. Be careful what you ask for. Maybe we'll I mean, have to have you on as a duo. Yeah, the, the handful of times his name has come up have all been in very good places here. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that's indicative of what the episode would be. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're continuing on. We, we, we have a Susie and the Banshees cover, which always excites me. We haven't had the, the chance to play them a lot, but they have come up a handful of times. But they did a cover of All Tomorrow's Parties. Yeah. And this is another one where I listened to a few covers and I had to go with this one. Yeah. No, this one's really cool. This is a hard song to cover too. A lot of the ones I listen to are like, I listen to all of them that were on secondhand songs and I couldn't really find any better than, than Susie. just such a cool voice <laughs> like, i know it's it's unmatched Susie, you know, Susie's covered iggy pop he's covered bark you really have to have guts to that is bark. hard <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah did you ever see Susie and the banshees I did. In fact, I saw them play on my birthday. Really? What were they like live? They must have been wild, right? They were. They 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 were they were great. Uh, they were really a lot of fun. I actually, again, I sound like a terrible name dropper, but I actually managed to get backstage because this was in the great era of fanzines, and I, a couple of friends and I, worked on a fanzine, and we got backstage to do an interview with her and I remember she was just um she wasn't completely happy with her performance uh she felt she hadn't done everything she could and she was she had a scarf around her neck to trying to protect her throat uh she, she I wouldn't call her warm and friendly but she was very but but she was very nice I mean she she, she welcomed us. She didn't have a problem with us. Um, she's, I mean, she, she's had a, she's had an, an interesting career. She really has. I don't know a ton about Susie and the Banshees. Just every time they come up, it's like, it's extremely interesting. Like I've never listened to it and been like, man, this is kind of boring. <laughs> well, it's, yeah. I mean, I wasn't a huge fan, but. Uh, almost every time they put a single out, I hear it and think, yeah, I have to have this. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. You did a fanzine. Do you have any copies still? I might. 
I might. I mean, I didn't do it. I, I just contributed. But I, I might have. I might have the one where I wrote a little bit about about Susie. I mean, I, right, I don't want to digitize build it up that. Oh, <laughs> oh, the, yeah. world, the world, the world doesn't need that. <laughs> <laughs> I would be fascinated. I would love to read it. All right, you ready to move to the next one here? I'm I'm very excited about this next one. This was, I this think, my favorite. Yeah, this this might be my favorite cover of all of these. Just such an interesting wow. voice. The Richard Barone, I'll Be Your Mirror cover. Yeah, I listened to the rest of this album today. <laughs> and, like, actually took me on a tangent. I didn't have that much time to listen to all this stuff. And ended up listening to, yeah, this whole Primal Dream album. Is this someone you'd heard of before, Shiva? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Richard. Um, well, back in the day uh, when he was a young pup, he had a, a, a band called the Bongos. And uh, they used to play here a lot. And they were a lot of fun. And he is, um, he's had a, a, you know, a, a pretty long career of, of doing different things. Uh, some, one of his sort of like a side project, but it's a really great one. Uh, he and Glenn Mercer, who is in the feeling, team oh, yeah. up, to, and they they team up as Hazy Cosmic Jive. And uh, as you might guess from the name, uh, they do covers of Bowie, of Lou, uh, Mark Bolin, uh, Roxy music, uh, and wow. maybe Mata. So, so you can see that what they're working and. They do really, really great covers of these songs. Uh, very, very loving tributes, especially Bolin and T-Rex, because Richard, as, as a, a young a young guy, is crazy about them. T-Rex uh, is so great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but really, really, he really digs in. Uh, he, he takes, I mean, he takes a very, both a very emotional approach and a very intellectual one. Uh, and he's also a really sweet guy. Very, very nice. Very friendly. Nice. Yeah, I and love this. Last, it, it is great. The last time I saw them, Danny mentioned that I have a lot of set lists. Uh, at the end of their, their set, I asked if I could have the set list. And he said, well, could I take a picture of it and send it to me? Because it's the only copy I have. So you can have it. <laughs> Oh, what a sweetheart! That's awesome. That's <laughs> so nice. He is—he is, he is absolutely a sweetheart. And um, uh, if if they come around, if, if if they come to your town, in any incarnation, but especially Hazy Cosmic Jive, I recommend it highly. Uh, yeah, definitely. I'm, I am in for that. That sounds amazing. Now yeah, there, there was also another. I'll be your mirror cover that we we will talk about. We're going to do well. This is us announcing it, I guess. We're going to start doing episodes where we just go through full compilations of covers. And there's an I'll be your mirror compilation. That's what the album is called. And there's a Courtney Barnett cover of I'll be your mirror on that compilation. That is really good. But we will do a separate episode all about that compilation because there's a ton of great covers off of that one. So we yeah. are going to kick off our compilation episodes with this one. So that'll that'll come right. later. We'll spend more time on that when it comes. But 
uh, aside from that, we're gonna we're gonna continue on. We're um, you know I'm probably gonna cut a couple as we go here, but for now we're okay. Sure. But um, we're going to do "Run, Run, Run" by Echo and the Bunny Men. <laughs> well, I could have just let him do. It. <laughs> <laughs> They're a band that, like, I, I I don't know where I really fall on them, but when it hits, it really hits. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, you know, I never saw them back in the day, and they're coming to Philadelphia in September, and I bought a ticket. So after, oh, all nice. these years, after all these years, I'm going to get to see them. I, I saw a, a billboard for them, and that kind of threw me. Like, they're a billboard band. <laughs> that, I didn't that, know they were still that. playing. Yeah, I think it's, they're doing like a 40th anniversary of something tour. I'm not sure, but I just I, I just said, okay, now I, I have to go. Yeah, totally. I was going to note how all the, there's, a, there's like several live versions of songs on here which is usually something we skip but um they're all like excellent live versions of these songs like none of them are bootleg sounding they're all like they're just yeah they're like very intentional sounding I love it when these goth bands sound like a uh, upbeat chipper. <laughs> yeah, right. that's like a, that's the thing I particularly like. I think about these like sort of '80s goth bands. There's a few uh, like original Cure songs that are like that too. Yeah, the the next one we we were gonna do we're gonna we're gonna start cutting stuff for time, but the REM yeah. cover of "There She Goes Again." is is excellent i mean dead letter office might as well be it, it might be my favorite rem album but it's it's not an album it's just a compilation of rem songs that didn't belong anywhere else it's a it's a good time but uh we already talked about rem enough and dead letter office for that matter enough so we're going to keep going to here she comes now covered by nirvana yeah. yeah, and this is uh, something like it's either a demo or it's off the Nevermind sessions. I don't think it's like officially released anywhere, right, Shiva? Uh, I don't know. I was really happy that it was on the the secondhand song site, and I figured, well, if it's there, I mean, yeah. this is a perfect match of of band and cut co- and song. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a huge Nirvana fan. Eventually, we're going to do a Nirvana episode, and John's going to try to change my mind. I think I will, too. I, but, you're, like, yeah. trying to be a huge Nirvana fan, I think. Yeah, I, I think I'm at the right point in this show that this show will do it to me by default, whoever we do. <laughs> totally. Well, Nirvana does so many great... Uh, the, their covers of the Meat Puppets, I, like... That was my entry into the Meat Puppets, and now they're, like, one of my favorite bands. Yeah. 
And he, the way he does, the way he sings, so is the way he sings it. Maybe it's just the way they like arrange it and the way he sings it. You can tell how much he loves the the songs that he's singing. Like he he sings his own songs with kind of like a, I don't really care about what I'm doing right now, but he sings right. covers like so passionately. Yeah, like like his his cover of um, you know the the man who sold the world. Maybe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, we, we spent a good, good amount of time on that one on that other episode, just talking about how like you can take control of a cover but still pay it all the respect. Right. Well, you know, it's funny because saying that how he puts so much passion into the covers that r- reminds me of of modern day Dylan. Uh, when you go see him, uh, you know he was. Uh, when he uh, on the couple of tours recently where he was alternating between doing his own stuff and doing the covers of standards that Sinatra made famous and when he does his own stuff you know it, it never sounds the same twice uh, sometimes it takes you halfway through the song before you realize what it is it, he does he turns it inside out so much but then when he would do these standards I mean he gave them so much care and love and was clearly putting every every you know ounce of, of his, his energy and his soul into making sure these songs were treated properly. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. It, it, I it love was, that. It was, that. You've got to see. It, it was a chance to see him not as you know, Dylan, the, the, the songwriter, but but Dylan, the, the musician and the fans. Yeah, the nerd. <laughs> it shows that maybe the way the way a musician treats a cover shows yeah. how how yeah how how uh, how into music they are and like how nerdy they are about it. Yeah, I saw him right. in like 2005 or six, like right when he was uh, hitting the point where he was no longer able to play guitar, and like he was right. still playing it a little bit, but mostly not. And the people I went with were disappointed by that, but like I. I'd seen like live video of Dylan. I'm like, all right, cool. Like, I got my fill of that. Now I'm having a unique Bob Dylan experience that is like specific to now in this moment. And then he also played Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat. I was like, I'm good. <laughs> like, I'm all no, set. There's I a didn't... million. Yeah, there's a million artists that sound like Bob Dylan that are like young. You can listen to somebody that sounds, you know, in their 20s doing folk music now, probably. Probably somewhere in the in the Manhattan. Same yeah, clubs. Right. Yeah, Re- Reconteurs were the opener. I love them. I, I was That was already great. I was like, if this is all I see and, and Bob Dylan tanks, whatever. I got to see Jack White live pretty close. That was cool. But then I, I loved was- it. That was in 2006. I was at that show. Yeah, I was. I was in Massachusetts somewhere. It was like a. Uh, I was it. Then I. Then we saw at different different places, but it was that same tour. Because I saw the Rock and Tours open, Dylan. I I did not care for them. I have to be honest. I I left liking the other guy more and started listening to his solo stuff and I, I basically haven't listened to anything Jack White's done since but in that moment I was very into it interesting yeah I I I went in willing to give them a, an opportunity and I, I found them kind of dull and I and I and I left 
Yeah, I, yeah back- I feel the same way about the raconteurs. The only Jack White I can really get into. I, I saw the dead weather and I sort of felt the same thing. I was like, it's like, okay. It's like, they definitely think they're cooler than how cool I think they are. Well, yeah, the that's... white stripes were, I thought, really cool. It, I bet it would have been fun to see them, especially with how they, they just had such a unique sound and a look. Yeah, I was still riding the high of, of being a white stripes fan, especially yeah. because I didn't. <laughs> I didn't really get into a lot of that kind of reemergence of garage rock, but then they put out cool music videos and I was like, well, I guess I'll like them. They're the one I'm picking. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're going to, uh, actually, John, if you want to play a little of the original, I feel like this might be the, the standout of Velvet Underground songs because it doesn't literally does not sound like any other Velvet Underground song. It might be the cutest song I've ever heard after hours. Yes, it is. Who is singing it? Mo she, yeah, she oh. finds her way out from behind the drums and is front and center for this one. I wish it could happen to me. But if you close the door... I just wanted to make sure everybody got a feel. This is where they're coming from. We're going to... Con- Continue through with the After Hours covers. We're going to start with Baby Shambles, the, the Pete Doherty band. I've never heard of Baby Shambles, and I'm not actually totally sure I know who Pete Doherty is. I I mostly know him as like the tabloid fodder character that he is, but I'm I'm, I'm slightly aware of his music. Yeah, he wasn't wasn't his main band, The Libertines. Yes, and then Baby Shambles was sort of another project. Uh, Okay. I was like 18, 19 at this time. I was not very hip. So <laughs> this all seems to have passed me by. Now, the the other After Hours cover is another one of those bands that I don't know where I fully land on them, but I'm a big fan of Jenny Lewis. So I always give them a shot. And I it probably came out somewhere in the middle of this one because they do a little too much, but I'm still happy to see that Rilo Kylie is here. Rilo Kylie did a version. Totally. All I can ever think about Riley Kiley is the guy from uh, Salute Your Shorts. Yeah. I mean, she was also a famous actress, too, as a child. I know. <laughs> I did not realize how long they, they chattered before Neither the did song I. started. <laughs> I, I, skipped it, I skipped it before. I got to where like the song is, and then I went back. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't realize how far I had gone. I think it's just a weird mix. It's like I, I like all the pieces. I think it's nice. 
I think it's just I, I I want the song to always be vocals first. Like the, yeah. the the music should be secondary, and I think this one kind of gets that wrong. But I love the vocals. I agree. It's it's too it's 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 too slick, and it should never be slick. Yeah, it's yeah. it's not it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to no. send you out of like it's it's a last track for a reason. You're supposed to go home to it, like. That's a problem right. with, this is what I mean about these Velvet Underground songs. You're like, a lot of times you listen to it and you're like, it's just not, like, there's not like a better take on this song. Yeah. <laughs> like, even the Baby Shambles one, it's great. Like, I could maybe see Alex Chilton doing some, but even that, like, you're not going to be rawer than the Velvet Underground's version. Right. Like, it's not meant to be like a full song. Like you said, like, it's meant to be at the end of an album. But it's so beautiful. It's like I can I get the urge, like as a musician, to be like, oh, I want to, like, I don't care. I love it. Like, I, I want to play. Like, <laughs> I want to do that. But then, yeah, it's hard for it to. I'd love to hear. I don't know. Maybe it has to be a totally different genre. You know, mentioning. I don't think a lot of them do really venture from genre. It just happens to to be Velvet Underground puts things in a lot of different places. <laughs> Yeah, right. I mean that Aloe Black definitely had a sweet uh, yeah, soul version. That's the only one that's really. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting some, but yeah, that's yeah, the only one that punk, really jumps out as different. But it's a little like pre, you know, Velvet Underground lends itself well to the punk songs, I think. But anyway, just speaking very of punk, <laughs> I just I just want to make this transition even because it does not work. We're we're going to the Decemberist covering. <laughs> I'm sticking with you. The least punk band I could make that transition with. <laughs> yeah, that classic punk harpsichord. <laughs> this one was in commercials, wasn't it? I think this version. It could have been. Every every cover of this song sounds the same. I could see it, but yeah, that's. But it's not all that different from the original. Right. No, it really isn't. Yeah, I'm not a huge Decemberist fan. <laughs> I I am. This is not a great representation of them, but I, I'm a big fan of a band with pop sensibilities, but no choruses. It's a very weird thing that they do. You have to make me a mixtape someday. I went with it strictly because it was the closest cover of this I could find that stuck with the original spirit because again it, it shouldn't be slicked up it shouldn't be produced i mean it starts out sounding like a song you would have sung in kindergarten you know yeah. you, you the kids and then you have this weird middle part and then it becomes this really beautiful lovely little you know anything you want i'll be any you know anything you want me to i'm sticking with you i mean it's it's a whole world in one little song. Yeah, that's a great point. I think the beginning, the beginning just throws me off so much. I like his voice so much more. And like, I, I like her voice. She, she has a good voice. It's uh, Petra Hayden and she's been amazing. Like, the, the, she she sang some of my favorite songs. 
But just in the Decemberists, I'm not a huge fan. Right. Uh, Hayden, Hayden Triplets, I recommend them to everybody. I think they are, I mean, it's a singing trio. So unless you absolutely hate harmonies, you won't like it. But like, I recommend <laughs> them to everybody. I cannot imagine somebody not finding something there. But also, also that dog. That dog is a fucking great band. It's the only time I'm going to say fucking this time. <laughs> Deserved there. <laughs> We're going now to the Chris Coco and Nick Cave cover of Sunday Morning. Who is Chris Coco? Good question. I've never heard of him. <laughs> it says some, something to do with dance music. He's a DJ, producer. But I don't know. I'd, I'd never heard of him. Yeah, that was not the part of this one that stood out to me at all. <laughs> it's just restless. Actually, it's probably not impossible that Spotify has confused two different Chris Cocos now that I think <laughs> about it. Not out of the question, I produced a comedy album that is often attributed to some white older man singer, and it was definitely a black guy that we put the album out for. So, um, these things happen. Yeah. Computers can only do so much. Nick Cave is another one that I need. I need like a, I need a mixtape. Somebody needs to make me a mixtape to get into Nick Cave. You know, we could do a Nick Cave episode. There's probably enough there to do. I feel like he's been covered a ton, probably. I would think so. He, he has a lot of like that kind of pop rock song. I feel like a lot of people have probably gone down that path. That would be perfect then. The other two uh, Sunday mornings because we'll talk about those more on the uh, comp episode. Going from, from Sunday morning now, we're going to a, a person who was uh, very, very big for me during the pandemic. I discovered the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour, and it is hilarious. And also, the musical performances on that are some of the best like televised music performances I've ever seen. Like, so, really? sometimes he'll duet with people, sometimes he won't, but there, there's some just amazing Stevie Wonder performances. He's on there a couple times. There's a Neil Diamond performance that made me reconsider Neil Diamond entirely. Like you there, love Neil there's, Diamond. There's a, there's a lot of good to be found in that show. And it's also just very funny throughout. It's very absurdist humor, which I don't expect to find from a variety show. It's really, really fun. But um, he did a cover of Jesus. Yes, he did. It, it really says something. I mean, here is Lou Reed, a Jewish guy from New York, uh, writes this song that he didn't necessarily have any particular sincerity about it, but it wasn't, he's not mocking uh, religion or Jesus. He's just using 
using it to convey something. And Glenn Campbell hears the song and hears it in a different, in a, as a very straightforward, earnest, beautiful hymn. And it works. It really does. Yeah, it really does. I, I listened to this one a few times today um, while I was uh, upstairs playing with my family after dinner. And my <laughs> wife kept looking at me like, what, what are you playing? <laughs> Did you accidentally put on the Christian rock radio station again? <laughs> it's, like, no, no, no. It's a Velvet Underground cover, I swear. I, I yeah. was very excited to find this cover because it's from a covers album, but he made very interesting choices with the covers album where like he covered like green day he covered good riddance i, I would love <laughs> he covered the prime in a, song in the green day prime campbell song. version but he also did grow old with me and then he covered two foo fighters songs and he covered a couple of tom petty songs and like he covered paul westerberg he did sadly beautiful like it's it's not what I expected when I clicked on a Glenn Campbell cover album. Yeah, and I would imagine, that, you know, it, he had, I would suspect his, his kids were, you know, bringing songs to him, but it's the idea that he was open to it and, and receptive to whatever they brought him and, and worked with them. Yeah, yeah, and obviously he heard something in this song, right? Yeah. And, and again, this, this is one of those examples of where I think Lou Reed just was such a great writer and, and wanted, he, he was, he, he's using Christian, uh, you know, terminology, using, you know, the, that because there isn't really an equivalent uh, in Judaism that would, that would convey it. And it was an easy way to write a song about questioning and wondering and someone sort of at a crossroads. And it's, and, and you, you know, it, Glenn Campbell can cover it and it, and you could, you could imagine all these people tuning into Christian radio and thinking, yeah, this is great. And at the same time, you could hear some other artists take it, take it in a completely different direction. Oh yeah. Yeah. You can see the church band and the mega church playing this and everyone going wild. Right. That was awesome. I, and they, I love so that good, version right? so much. Like, I, I, I didn't yeah. even put all that context to it. And, like, now I just want to listen to it again. I <laughs> like, I'm telling you, I just had it on repeat for a, a solid, I don't know, 20 minutes playing that, with, my, with, my, with the baby. That was great. So we're going now. I lost my spot. All right, there we go. We're going now to the absolute gray cover of Beginning to See the Light, which I, I like that this is coming up towards the end. We're nearing the end, and we we have <laughs> I think one we have one more song that we're we're gonna get to here. I, I like that this is kind of like a bringing us to a crescendo here. Absolute Gray is another one I'd never heard of. I was not familiar with them. Yeah, I, I didn't know it, and I listened to it, and I thought, yeah, I, I, I like what they're doing with it, and it's a great song, so why not include it? Oh, my goodness. What did you Ilan learn? Shiva. So this, I didn't look carefully at this band. They're on 
a really cool compilation. Who put this out? Captured Tracks put this out in 2020 called Strum and Thrum, the American Jangle Underground, 1983 to 1987. And uh, I don't know how I stumbled on this, but I found some of my favorite songs on here that I'd never heard of before. A lot of them are like, uh, you know, bands that played in college in like mid small Midwestern cities for, you know, three years. Maybe they put out a seven inch um, and then that was it forever. But, uh, I'm trying to find the band that I loved on here. Cyclones. Whatever, I could talk about this forever. Let's finish this in a second. We'll, we'll, we'll find a way to shoehorn that in. So it looks like they're from Rochester. Okay. I buy that. This feels like the right vibe for weird upstate suburbia. All right. You ready to roll into our, our, our last song here? Oh yeah, I think it, it is. I think it's probably the right choice to uh, close out the episode on, and uh, we're we're gonna get some interesting ones out of the way first before <laughs> we go with Shavis, which is <laughs> it's an interesting way to close out the episode, which is considerably better. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna go with ones that it, it does feel unfortunate that we had to save these for the end that we couldn't uh, cleanse our palate after them, but we're gonna do the Dave Navarro version. Yeah. Yeah, we're really getting into it here. This is, uh, yeah, this is like 2001 new metal adjacent Dave Navarro. I'm going to skip ahead a little. We don't have to listen to a lot. It kind of is what it is. Yeah, alt-rock alt superstar Dave Navarro, should've, who should have never done anything by himself. Never, ever, ever should he have done something <laughs> by himself. <laughs> Yeah, it's something. This is like when Dave Navarro was hanging out with Marilyn Manson, I think. Yeah, probably. All right, that's enough. Uh, <laughs> I know, but you know what? Like a the, lot of these, I listen to a lot of versions of Venus and Birds, and they all sound like the original. So, like when I heard Dave Navarro, I was like, oh, at least he's doing something with it. But I mean, on the on that subject, at least they're doing something with it. This next one might live up to that. <laughs> better than anything else and yeah i i might love it i don't know i have no <laughs> idea but the creed version is something else i yeah it's, it's from a different planet i love this yeah this is a, yeah let's get into it this is a black metal band i listened to at least skip through the rest of their record to confirm they are absolutely a black metal band um they do a pretty straightforward cover of this song Except, yeah, except for that voice. <laughs> they keep those black metal vocals. And this does not change. I'll just skip through this a little more. The, it, the, the level of ironic true. I got from this, I, I don't know that I can accurately describe it. <laughs> I think it's the commitment for me. I don't think I've ever heard this before where a black metal band's 
played an acoustic cover, <laughs> but kept their growly vocals. I just... It doesn't come across great. No. But I'll give them no, an A for effort. Now, we're going to go we're going to go out out on this one. This will be the last cover we play. It is the new Cornwell version of the, the song. All right. Oh, this is way I, better. Yeah, I love that part. The, the instrumentation here, it's its where it's supposed to be. It doesn't do anything crazy, but it, it changes just enough. Right. Oh, is this the guy from The Stranglers? Yeah. This is really cool. Well, now I feel foolish for playing uh, Dave Navarro. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you led up to this. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we had to build to this. <laughs> right. I love how, <laughs> how dark it makes it sound. Well, it's a dark song. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it really it's, is. And it should, and it should be. It, it, you don't want this to, to not sound dark. I think that's also a very unique thing with just the legacy of Velvet Underground is that of all the songs that they have that are much more poppy and kind of easy to sit with, that seems to be the one that the most people wanted to put their stamp on. Yeah, isn't that like interesting? That, that's the one that connected with people. But yeah, well, that's it. Uh... <laughs> You, 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 you. I, I'm impressed. You played just about everything I had on on my list. I'm. Uh, I, I guess I did a good job. Oh yeah. I mean, we we did our research and basically came back to. Uh, nah, yeah, Shaver got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I do what I can. Yeah, Shaver, but, your back uh, must be sore from carrying us this whole time. <laughs> uh, listen, this. It, it really, it's a labor of love. Uh, I know that's such a terrible cliche, but um, Lou, Lou Reed meant so much to me and the Velvet Underground as well. Uh, it's, I, I just, you know, it, it's a body of work I just cannot imagine not having. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going and, to spend a lot more time with it. it it's like the, the door was finally open for me now. They're like, I know <laughs> I, I, I can't put it off anymore. I'm like, all right, well, yeah, I guess I just do like this then. 
Very good. And and see, and the next time you, you see or hear one of these idiots that says, nobody really likes them. They just like to pretend they do because they think it's cool. You you know better. And well, that, that's the, to, the, the famous quote that I, uh, I wish I could attribute to someone specific. It's just been said by so many people is that no one bought their albums, but everyone who did became a band. Yeah, I... I've heard that that was that I've seen it attributed to Eno, and and that would oh, make sense. That something makes like, sense. Like, that like, grump. You know, 14, <laughs> yeah, fourteen hundred people bought the album, but everyone went on and started a band. Uh, well, but uh, but not many. As good as those bands were, not many of them could come as as close, you know, to to being the Velvet Underground, and it all comes back to Lou Reed and working with the right people. Yeah, it's amazing. They really were like the root, the roots for all of this, yeah, mo- modern, interesting, like pop, art, punk, <laughs> so, so yeah. much music sprung out from, from this like yeah, wellspring of creativity, you know? Yeah, and, and genres yeah. that wouldn't hit for like 20 years after them. Like, yeah, right. they did it first. Yeah, yeah. They, what's they, Thurston Moore and the? True. Yeah, what's his what's his band? The, uh, Sonic um, Youth. Yeah. Sonic Youth. Yeah, like it's amazing that that Sonic Youth was one of the bands that sprouted out of. Uh, yeah, out, out of Velvet Underground. Very, very much so. Now it, it's not not Velvet Underground. It's Lou Reed. But Danny, do you remember? Uh, the song that that Robert and I danced to for our first dance at our wedding. I I remember details, but not the the full specifics. So you're you're better to tell the story than me. <laughs> well, it's not a story. Just we we used "Perfect Day" Lou Reed. Oh man, what what a beautiful song! Yeah, it is. And the DJ that we hired wasn't familiar with the song. He loved it so much that he he told us that. Uh, a, I think like two different couples had come to him to hire him and uh, they didn't know what to use for their first song. And he recommended that. So you had people that people that probably never would have listened to Lou Reed or the Velvet Underground dancing to to him at their wedding just because it's such a perfect love song. Now it's been co-opted for commercials. And even then it hasn't ruined my impression of it. Like that's, that's how good this song is. It really is. It's like that's such a that's such a good idea. That's such a good idea for a for a first hit song. But yeah, let's uh, let's let it play out to this, and uh, we'll call it a night. Java, thank you for being here. This was wonderful. And any anytime you want to do another one, let me know. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, it was it's fun to hang out with you guys for a couple of hours and tell my stories. So yes, that was great. Oh, it's such a perfect day I'm glad I spent it with you Oh, such a perfect day This has been a presentation from the Wasted Robot Network. For more information and links to other shows, please visit www.wastedrobotrecords.com/podcasts. Weekenders on our own. It's such fun. Weekenders on our own. It's such fun.
just a perfect day. You made me forget myself. I thought.